This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, everybody. It's, it's wonderful to be here with all of you, and I'm, I'm really um, appreciative to have the opportunity to speak today. Next slide. So today, um, I have no disclosures, and the goal of my talk is to give a refresher on gastroesophageal reflux disease, the mechanisms and pathophysiology, and I plan to discuss the risk factors, um, tips for assessing GERD, um, symptoms in those with IDD, you know, because there are some um, unique challenges in this population for the clinician. And I will also briefly review uh, diagnostic options and current therapies. Next slide. So what is GERD? Gastroesophageal reflux disease is defined as a condition which develops when the retrograde flow or reflux of stomach contents into the esophagus causes troublesome symptoms and or complications. And GERD is further subclassified into esophageal and extraesophageal syndromes. Next slide. I think it's important to remember that reflex is a normal physiologic process and episodes typically occur after eating, they're short-lived, they don't cause symptoms and they rarely occur at night. And reflex is necessary to vent gas. So, you know, remember that the gastric juice is a really noxious blend of acid, bile, digestive enzymes, such as pepsin, um, which is caustic and can injure the epithelium unless protective mechanisms are in place. And that protective mechanism that we have, you know, prevents the inflammation of mucosa. And one of the main defense mechanisms is the lower esophageal sphincter, which you can see here. It's a little segment of smooth muscle where the esophagus and the diaphragm meet. And it is, um, under normal circumstances, together with the diaphragm, the LES prevents the retrograde flow of gastric juice into the esophagus by maintaining a high pressure zone. And the LES opens to allow food to pass to the stomach and then it closes again. Other reflex uh, defenses include fundic compliance, um, which refers to the reduction in gastric tone and the stomach's ability to accommodate increased volume after ingesting a meal without a rise in gastric pressure. And following reflex, another um, defense mechanism is the clearance and emptying of reflexed fluid by esophageal peristalsis, as well as swallowing of saliva, which has a high level of bicarbonate that neutralizes and buffers acid. Also, the epithelium itself is very protective against reflux injury, and it has tight junctions, a lipid-rich matrix that can retard penetration of acid. Next slide. So now that we know what some of the major protective mechanisms are, let's just briefly look at what can go wrong. The pathophysiology is really complicated, and it continues to be an area of ongoing research. I'm going to try to boil it down to a few essential points so that you know, it'll help us guide treatment and um, it'll under, help us understand that a little further in the talk. So I like to think of this as, you know, a balance. The development of GERD reflects an imbalance between the injurious or symptom causing factors like acid events, acidity of the reflexate and esophageal hypersensitivity and defensive factors 
like esophageal acid clearance and mucosal integrity. The severity of symptoms and the mucosal injury are proportional to the frequency of reflex events, the duration of mucosal acid exposure, and the caustic potency of reflex fluid. So GERD occurs when the LES, the sphincter, is weak or it relaxes inappropriately or it opens under tremendous pressure. And by far the most common cause of EGJ incompetence are transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations. Those are TLESRs, and I'm only getting into this granular detail because this really helps understand the treatments. But TLESRs are part of a physiological mechanism of belching, but it's a primary cause of reflux when they become more frequent and they become associated with acid reflux instead of gas venting alone. Um, I'm going to skip through um, just in, in terms of time, but um, in addition to the TLESRs, um, impaired gastric accommodation or delayed gastric emptying, increased intragastric pressure and can lead to GERD episodes. And other factors that increase intragastric pressures include certain postures like supine position, tight clothing, episodes of straining, cough, or wheezing. Um, the LES um, can become disrupted um, for a number of different reasons, but primarily it's associated with hiatal hernia. And ineffective esophageal motility, which includes you know, failed or weak peristalsis, failed contractions, is a major cause of poor emptying. Um, Re-reflex -re -re or retrograde flow of acid is associated with hiatal hernias and increases acid exposure time. And then reduced salivation or diminished salivary neutralizing capacity also prolongs acid clearance. Um, the loss of mucosal integrity and increased permeability can reduce the ability of the mucosa to withstand injury. And um, lastly, I just want to mention that we often see heartburn and reflux symptoms in patients who have a normal esophageal acid exposure. And this, we think, is related to a heightened esophageal mucosal sensitivity, also known as visceral hyperalgesia. And these patients are believed to have an enhanced sensory perception of normal reflux, um, which will be important to bear in mind when we review treatment options. Okay, next slide. So just a few more comments on um, other factors that contribute to reflux um, and impair the EGJ function. The hiatal hernia, you know, is the herniation of the intra-abdominal contents in turn, including the upper portion of the stomach. And it basically pushes up into the chest through the opening in the diaphragm called the esophageal hiatus. And with a hiatal hernia, size matters. Um, it's one case where the severity of reflex esophagitis is directly correlated with the size of the hernia. So a small hernia is considered to be two to four centimeters and generally doesn't require any kind of action or cause symptoms. Whereas a larger hernia, five centimeters or more, um, is associated with a shorter, weaker LES, increased reflex. And Hiatal hernias, lower LES pressure, they increase TLESRs in response to gastric distension. Um, okay, and obesity 
um, of course, increases intragastric pressure. It's a risk factor for GERD and erosive esophagitis. And even moderate weight gain can exacerbate symptoms. Um, Obesity is associated also with disruption of the EGJ, leading to hiatal hernia, increased acid exposure, and increased frequency of TLESRs. And um, I won't go through all these, but um, it's important to know that, you know, many foods, smoking, and many medications can cause relaxation of the LES, um, which again leads to GERD. Okay, next slide, please. So let's shift gears a little bit and briefly just touch on the prevalence of GERD, which is at least 20% in the US population and slightly more prevalent in men. And GERD is the most frequent diagnosis associated with outpatient visits and it accounts for 110,000 hospital admissions annually in the US. And GERD is classified into three phenotypes, non-erosive reflux, erosive esophagitis, and Barrett's esophagus, with non-erosive disease being the most prevalent. And it's important to remember that it's associated with troublesome reflux symptoms, but it's in the absence of any kind of esophageal mucosal erosion on endoscopy in contrast to patients with EE or Barrett's, you know, who have clear mucosal injury. Okay, next slide. So as you can see, GERD in IDD is much more prevalent than in the general population. And it's estimated that about 50% or more of those with IDD um, have GERD related to a comorbid complex of physical and intellectual disabilities and increasing longevity. And while we don't have as many institutionalized folks with IDD, some of the landmark highest quality study were done by BOMER. Um, and this is a group, a Dutch group that studied folks in institutional populations. And it showed that over 50% of this population was had GERD and 70% of those had reflux esophagitis on EGD, but none of these people complained about it. Um, in some other studies with um, PDD, the prevalence of GI disorders, especially GERD, was found in 48% versus 8% in non-PDD clients. And several studies in children with autism show clinically significant GI symptoms, including GERD, in 46% versus 10% in developmentally normal controls. Um, and in neurologically impaired kids, the incidence of GERD is estimated as high as 75% you know, by various studies. And the primary cause is thought to be CNS dysfunction. And, you know, this is commonly seen in cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, as well as some more rare conditions like Cornelia to Lang syndrome, Rett syndrome, West syndrome, and others. Next slide. So it's imperative to recognize the aggress and aggressively treat GERD to reduce the risk of patients developing complications. Long-standing pathological acid exposure over time causes chronic inflammation in the esophagus and leads to complications. So esophageal strictures involve, you know, scar tissue that can lead to narrowing of the esophagus, dysphagia, food impaction. This is a photograph here of, you know, a grade D erosive esophagitis, and um, that's defined as mucosal erosions and breaks. Um, and deep ulcers, hemorrhage, exudates, stenosis, or some of the more serious complications. 
And then Barrett's esophagus is normal stratified squamous epithelium that gets replaced by columnar epithelium. And that's thought to occur over time due to chronic inflammation. Um, that diagnosis is made on histopathology. So endoscopic exam is required and it is a precursor to um, esophageal adenocarcinoma. So regular surveillance for Barrett's is, is necessary. Next slide. I'm going to breeze through this, but you can see here that, you know, Barrett's essentially is still pretty rare. Um, the progression to esophageal adenocarcinoma is even more rare, um, but there is, you know, a high morbidity in the IDD population with um, studies showing as high as 26% in those with esophagitis having Barrett's. So again, early diagnosis and treatment and regular surveillance is really critical. Next slide. So in those with IDD, um, GERD occurs from inf infancy to older adulthood and it impacts health and quality of life, causing unnecessary suffering um, when it's not treated properly. And while the general population can express discomfort verbally, many of those with IDD may not be able to express pain or discomfort you know, through speech. This does not mean that discomfort does not exist. Um, and so it can be really difficult to recognize and characterize GERD because of communication challenges. And sadly, pathological GERD is often overlooked in neurologically impaired individuals as symptoms are typically um, nonspecific or atypical. Um, for some with IDD, behavioral cues might be the only symptom of underlying GERD. So it's essential for care providers to be educated and recognize, you know, and be sensitive to signals um, that are indicative of GERD. Uh, next slide, please. So in the general population, the classic symptoms of GERD are heartburn and regurgitation. And you can see here some other typical symptoms like dysphagia, chest discomfort, belching, nausea are fairly common. And some of the more atypical or extraesophageal symptoms include things like coughing, wheezing, sore throat, globus sensation, um, dental erosions, et cetera. Next slide, please. The symptom presentation in those with IDD can be vastly different from the general population. And these symptoms can include persistent vomiting, bloody emesis, rumination, regurgitation, food refusal, um, failure to thrive, unexplained weight loss. Um, and with those who have feeding tubes, you might see formula on the back of the throat or, in, or on, on the breath. And behavioral cues that you might see include self-injurious behavior, aggression or fear, agitation, depression, and restlessness. Next slide. So there's a really wonderful pediatric gastroenterologist named Tim Bowie out of Harvard and Boston Children's, who's done a lot of work to help kids um, with ASD who have GERD and other GI issues. And it's generally thought that, or it's been observed that kids with ASD rarely present with regurgitation or spitting, but they'll do other things to suggest that they have GERD. And some of these things include constantly wanting to put something in their mouths, um, constantly chewing on something, frequently chewing on their shirts, 
pica behavior behaviors where they're seeking non-food um, based products to put in their mouths. And they may point to an area, but not actually point to it because pointing is difficult in kids with autism. But instead, you may see them tapping. And so you might think that this is a repetitive behavior, and you may have even been told that it's a repetitive behavior. But in reality, it's actually the child saying, you know, look here, I'm in distress. And they'll frequently tap on their chests. And this might also be the kid who is, you know, frequently leaning their stomach against a chair or another piece of furniture. Um, so, so those are things to look out for. Um, as well as not wanting to go to bed because symptoms tend to be much worse at night, um, facial grimacing. Um, and one really strong correlation um, with kids with ASD and a positive GERD diagnosis is a choking, gagging, coughing, or wet sound during or after swallowing or with meals. Next slide. So, there are a number of predisposing factors that put those with IDD at greater risk for GERD, such as being non-ambulatory, and you can you know, read on on this list. But in patients, for example, with more severe forms of CP and other you know, disorders, chronic supine position is common, and it leads to impaired clearance of the reflexate. Additionally, CNS um, disease and people with CP or Down syndrome may have a direct effect on upper gastrointestinal motility and decreased LES tone. Um, common comorbidities in CP and other diseases like include scoliosis, chronic respiratory disease, and seizure disorder. And scoliosis can displace the stomach and stretch the lower LES. And scoliosis as well as spasticity induces GERD um, by increasing the intra-abdominal pressure. Um, and there's a real direct connection between respiratory disease and GERD. They can affect one another. So one can predispose to the other. Um, GERD may exacerbate or worsen um, respiratory disease by aspiration or reflexive responses like cough or laryngospasm or apnea. Um, and for patients with NG tube feeding or gastrostomy feeding, GERD may lead again to um, LES relaxation, secondary to gastric distension that happens um, when there's a rapid intragastric bolus um, during feeding. So choice of formula with lower osmolality can sometimes enhance gastric emptying and be beneficial in these cases. And lastly, polypharmacy is really common in this population. So it's really important to review medication side effects as potential exacerbating factors. Um, Anticonvulsants in particular are commonly used, and many of them can lead to side effects like nausea, vomiting, heartburn, and dysphagia, and can exacerbate GERD. Next slide. So let's briefly look at the diagnostic options for GERD. Um, in the absence of alarm symptoms, we still diagnose GERD with an empiric trial of PPI, and this approach is less costly than diagnostic tests, and it's endorsed by the societal guidelines. Um, and it's actually quite effective in the majority of cases, but when it's not um, improving the patient's symptoms, then we would move on to endoscopy with biopsy um, to look for complications and to detect an alternate diagnosis that might reflect or redirect therapy. Um, I'm not gonna go 
into all of these, but I just want to um, say that the two main tests that we're going to look at are endoscopy with biopsy and then ambulatory pH monitoring with or without uh, manometry. And those are really different tests. Um, the endoscopy allows us to look directly um, at the mucosa to do biopsies. And the pH testing is actually when we put a transnasal catheter in the nose into the stomach for 24 hour period. And we can actually measure reflex events, non-acid reflex events. Um, we can do symptom correlation. And if manometry is also done, that is great for looking at motility disorders, looking at peristalsis, the function of the muscle, um, the GEJ competence and things like that. Next slide. Um, there's one new novel um, approach to diagnosing that was approved in 2019, and it's called mucosal impedance. And this is done in real time during endoscopy where the um, endoscopist puts two sensors on the mucosal lining of the esophagus and they measure how permeable the tissue is. And increased permeability correlates with mucosal inflammation. And what's really exciting about this tool is that it's able to distinguish between reflex, um, eosinophilic esophagitis, and normal patients. And so it may have a really important place in diagnosing. Um, jury's still out right now, but um, it looks like this might be a novel technique that we're going to see more of in the future. Uh, next slide, please. So this is just a little bit more detail on when you're thinking about what diagnostic test to choose um, for patients with IDD. Um, upper endoscopy really, in many cases, is not that difficult um, as long as you know general anesthesia is involved and we can use smaller pediatric endoscopes, which can be helpful. Um, it always must be done when there's alarm symptoms. And it's important to remember that Upper endoscopy really actually has a low sensitivity for detecting GERD, only 20%. Um, and so GERD may actually be present even if you send a patient for endoscopy and the exam is normal. Um, and that's when, you know, you may want to consider at that point trying a 24-hour pH testing with or without manometry to get more information to see if there might be a motility disorder or maybe visceral hypersensitivity, something else is going on. Um, and the manometry, although the literature says that it's done in the vast majority of folks with IDD, in reality, um, I have to say that if the clinic is not experienced, uh, there's a lot of reluctance in clinicians to, to do this test. So there really needs to be um, you know, a team that's quite familiar and has a lot of expertise. Um, but if they do, then it's it's really not that difficult to do. And it, it doesn't involve sedation. Um, so it's it's potentially a good option. Next slide. So let's talk about treatment options. Um, we know there are multiple causes and mechanisms of GERD and the treatment approach should be tailored to these specific problems. And the initial management of GERD is going to depend on the severity of the symptoms and the frequency. And we're mainly focused on improving symptoms and reducing complications. And currently, the main treatment options remain to be 
diet and lifestyle modifications, medications, alternative therapies, endoscopic therapy, and surgical therapy. Next slide. So lifestyle modifications are often first line, and um, they can be beneficial um, as an adjunct to other therapies. Of all of these listed here, um, head of the bed elevation, left lateral decubitus position, and weight loss are by far the most efficacious for GERD. And even a 5% weight loss can significantly reduce symptoms. Next slide. Uh, this is just a quick uh, review of the main acid medications. And again, PPIs are consistently proven to be superior to H2 blockers. Um, we often see tachyphylaxis with H2 blockers where the response is diminished over a short period of time. Um, and again, PPIs are superior for healing of esophagitis, resolution of symptoms, and prevention of relapse. Next slide. This one is really interesting, I hope, for you guys. Um, I just want to briefly go over a few medications that um, are potentially really helpful in addition to the, the regular acid blockers. Alginates are derived from seaweed, and it, it forms a viscous gel raft of a neutral pH, and it floats on top of the gastric contents and displaces the acid pocket away from the EGJ. So it creates a mechanical barrier. And it's been shown that antacids with alginates are much more effective than just regular antacids. Um, in patients with refractory or partial response to PPIs, we sometimes add baclofen, which has demonstrated um, efficacy in reducing TLESERs and the number of GERD episodes. And it may also enhance postprandial LES pressures. There have been several promising trials in children with IDD, um, and it's also useful in rumination syndrome. Bile acid binders are currently under investigation, and cholecevalam um, can be effective for refractory symptoms when bile acid is suspected as a driver of symptoms. Buspirone may also improve compromised LES function. It's beneficial in patients with ineffective esophageal motility or hypocontractility, and it enhances esophageal peristalsis, and it can also be really helpful in esophageal hypersensitivity. Uh, no, uh, just a couple-minute warning, okay? Okay, thanks. Let me um, skip through here. There's a great study on acupuncture. Um, mechanical therapies, the goal is to, um, you know, reduce... Um, will increase LES pressure. I'm skipping ahead here. Um, fundification, if you can skip to that slide, um, is still the gold standard. Um, and it's in IDD, um, it's usually used as rescue therapy, but it's really considered quite safe, even in, you know, kids with um, IDD. But the complication rate in kids with IDD is a little bit higher um, than in the general population. Next slide. Um, so in summary for treatment, um, uh, we can do a combination of pharmacological treatment um, and non-pharmacological treatment. Um, I think I will just fast forward, I'm so sorry. Let's go to the second to the last slide. I, I had too many slides. So um, 
second to last slide uh, to wrap up, it takes a village. It's really, it's incumbent upon all of us providing care to those with IDD to be aware and recognize the unique signs and symptoms of GERD. Recognition of GERD often begins with family, longstanding caregivers, nurses, OT and PT, and caregivers should be educated and report all changes in behavior to the PCP who may initiate treatment and refer to gastroenterology if needed. And I wanna give a shout out to the dentists who may also be the first to see signs of GERD, such as enamel loss, um, bite collapse, oral discomfort, tooth sensitivity, and they can also refer to PCP for further evaluation. Coordination of care is critical and proactive interdisciplinary care that is family-centered and encourages open communication and continuity of care is the most effective. Last slide. Um, so in conclusion, individuals with IDD deserve the same attention and standard of care in the diagnostic workup and treatment of GERD as should occur in the normal population. This vulnerable population is often undiagnosed and overlooked due to complications with communication and um, because of their atypical presentation. And there's a real paucity of high quality research data and a need for more investigation. And finally, our society must continue to work toward closing the health disparity gap for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.